It has been well established that Patient and Family Advisory Councils, or PFACs, are an excellent way to capture the patient's voice and perspective. These councils help healthcare institutions and providers to hear the voice of the patient, identify the needs of their patient population, and bring patient and clinician's views closer together. In this four-part series, we'll hear from leaders in this area and explore the important role of PFACs as hospitals navigate the COVID-19 pandemic. Welcome to Advancing Health, a podcast brought to you by the American Hospital Association. I'm Tom Hederly with AHA Communications. Today, in the third episode of our four-part series on Patient and Family Advisory Councils, or PFACs, Elisa Arispakachaga, AHA's Vice President of Clinical Affairs and Workforce, sits down with Carolyn DeLongchamp, Manager of Patient and Family-Centered Care and Quality and Safety at MUSC Health, to discuss how to go about establishing a PFAC, including setting them up, staffing them, and sustaining them in your organization. Thanks, Tom. So to get us started, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself and your role at MUSC? Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be with you and talking about uh, my favorite thing and the thing that I'm most passionate about. But yes, my name is Caroline, and I my relationship began with the Medical University of South Carolina as the mother of a pediatric trauma patient. So I was not trained to be a healthcare employee. I always say healthcare found me. <laughs> so my 11-month-old son was struck by a car while crawling in our driveway. The tire of an SUV rested on his head and he suffered massive critical injuries. He was not supposed to survive, but he did uh, quite miraculously. So following our experience in the pediatric ICU and subsequently the step-down unit at the Children's Hospital, I decided to become a volunteer in order to pay it forward or give back and eventually was invited to serve on the Children's Health Patient and Family Advisory Council, which had just was really in its infancy. And from there, I had the opportunity to attend conferences and learn about what other hospitals were doing around the country. So I quickly became very passionate about this work. I learned that I could write an essay and be awarded free registration to an American Hospital Association conference. And so that was exciting. And it was really rewarding for me to be in the presence of professionals who are already doing this work. Because what I learned from my experience is that, you know, we have pockets of wonderful in our hospital, but they didn't necessarily translate across the healthcare system. It would depend on who your provider was or who your nurse that was that day, that we had different rules and expectations in different areas of the hospital. So how do we take a culture and make that transformative across the organization? That is wonderful. And I'm so glad your son is doing well and that you've been, you chose to bring your gifts to a healthcare system and share with all of us. So tell us a little bit about the patient and family advisory process and the team that does this work on a day-to-day basis that you work with. Yeah. So I, I guess I would say it depends on what you mean by process. We don't have a large team. We have an N of one, and that would be me, but I have incredibly gifted and talented professionals that I work with, in addition to the incredibly gifted and talented volunteer patient and family advisors. So I report to our chief quality officers. We have two. One is our Charleston-based CQO, and the other is our system-based chief quality officer, and she's the one who actually created this position in patient and family center care. 
And well, the reason that is, is because, you know, our high reliability statement includes patient-centered care, right? We're going to provide safe, timely, effective, equitable, efficient patient-centered care. And so high reliability is, is the goal in, in quality and safety, zero harm. And that's what we want the work of our patient and family advisory councils to be about. And so being aligned in this department is really important to me. And gratefully, now it is important to our quality professionals as well. I manage our PFACs. I do a lot of education in the organization about what patient and family center care is. I think in most organizations, you could probably stop five people and ask them, what does that mean to them? And you might get a few different definitions. So I think education about what creating partnerships among patients, families, and providers, what does that mean? And what does that look like? Because I use the word partnerships all the time, but the next step in that is helping our leaders and frontline care team members or staff understand how, well, how, how do I partner with patients and families? And then I always say we do that in two ways. One is in the delivery of care and one is in the evaluation of care. And that, and that's why we utilize patient and family advisory councils. I have to give a shout out to our CQOs because, you know, everything changed when COVID happened. So on March 13th in 2020, our healthcare organization experienced some furloughs, as did many others, I think. And I could have easily been one of those people on that list because I, at the end of the day, I don't provide direct patient care. But they recognize the importance of working with our patient and family advisors. And somehow they knew that they were going to be really valuable to us during that time, that we were going to be making mistakes, that we were changing policies and making adaptations to what was going on here, and that they would be able to help us. And that doesn't cost anything. So I, I really have a lot of gratitude for their being able to, to see down the line how important that would be. And so when our hospital moved into emergency operations, so did our PFACs. They never missed a meeting. They never stopped meeting. They never stopped working. We started with the family presence and visitation policy, and they reviewed patient-facing documents. They created tip sheets for the telehealth platforms. And we, I hope that we created some muscle memory because a lot of our staff were reaching out and asking for help. And they were getting answers very quickly because people were home and they were ready and eager to help. That's great. I love that you really use that community experience to, to really help under, people understand what was changing so rapidly and must have been so, so scary for those patients. And to be able to have folks really looking at what you were doing and, and giving you advice mentioned that you have multiple PFACs. So how do those groups work together and, and how do you coordinate some of that input among different groups, especially if they don't all agree? Yeah, I, I guess my short answer, and not to sound sassy, is that they don't really work together, the five different groups. They represent different patient populations. Three of them represent the adult world. Two of them represent children's health. And we are acquiring hospitals throughout the state and we're starting PFACs with those hospitals as well. So they don't work together in the sense that they're, you know, the issue, they have their own agendas, their own members, et cetera. I do have a patient and family center care steering committee where members of each of those groups come together in a room, a virtual room now. Everything is virtual now. And that is in order for us to share best practices so that we don't have one PFAC that's a high flyer and doing extraordinary things and another one that's really suffering. We're able to share with each other what's going on. 
And that steering committee also has members, other key stakeholders in the organization, the director of humanities or the chief learning officer, the director of uh, organizational excellence, just different folks that can help us kind of achieve this mission of fostering a culture of partnerships. Sometimes great ideas are spurred just by sharing information in those rooms. And some a professional might think, oh, I should connect with that person so that we can work on an idea together. One thing I did want to mention too, when it comes to, you know, you mentioned, you know, how we make changes. In the wake when COVID first happened and we were in uh, emergency operations, some of our leaders in the children's hospital recognized, they said, you know, the PFAC meetings are great, but they're not enough. And they're only once a month. And we're making changes every single day. And we know we're going to goof. At some point, we're going to goof. And we will be able to course correct much faster if we are hearing from our patient and family advisors on a consistent basis. In addition, we want our advisors to know what's going on so that they're effective, so that we don't have to kind of go over everything once a month at the beginning of the meeting, and that takes a lot of time. So they decided that they would do weekly office hours. So every week, there was not an agenda. There wasn't, it wasn't formal. Whoever wanted to join could join, but you, you dial in to the meeting and we would just talk. And one of the very first office hours meetings, we had a mom who shared her experience. She had just brought her daughter in for a COVID test because she was coming in for a heart cath the following week. And with a smile on her face, she said it was a little concerning because we were separated. And while I understand why we were separated, which to reduce the transmission of the virus, my daughter did not. Her daughter has special needs and as a cancer survivor and a recent heart transplant recipient. And so it took three nurses to hold her down to do the COVID test, which was not terribly unusual. But as the mom suggested, if I'm willing, since I live with her, to assume that risk, perhaps I could reduce the risk for a member of your staff. And then possibly our visit next week will be just a tiny bit less traumatic. And so our leaders heard that and they made the change within 24 hours. We had a new policy where parents could be present during a COVID test when appropriate. And she recognized because she's an advisor and she's been with us for a while, I get it. If you don't have enough PPE and there's a shortage, I understand. But when it's possible and when it's appropriate, it's better for everybody if I'm able to be there. And so that's a perfect example of partnership and making changes based on that partnership and listening to each other. Absolutely. And I think to some extent, it it gets to the, my next question is, you know, as you are taught, you talked about acquiring different hospitals and starting new groups. And I was going to ask how you start to build that trust. Well, changing policy within 24 hours based on, you know, an experience from a patient. And really, I don't know another way to engender it as quickly, but talk a little bit how, as you go into these new organizations and meet new people, how do you build that trust, not only in the organization, but among the participants and the volunteers? Yeah, I think it's a good question and probably one that would be on the minds of providers as they're kind of starting out on this work. And, and the short answer is I don't build the trust. I mean, I'm not, I'm, I like to think I'm good at what I do, but I am definitely not that good. So my job is identifying the patients and families to serve. My job is identifying the staff that are willing to serve, leaders, people who are champions for patient and family center care. And my job is training them and putting them in a room together. And as we say all the time, you know, culture change takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. And we don't want it to happen overnight. If it happened overnight, it probably wouldn't last. 
So by putting these people in a room together, making sure that they're, and again, I can't emphasize enough the training part. So, you know, it's really my job to make sure that these volunteer patient and family advisors are educated beyond their own patient or family experience to be effective advisors. Particularly in today's environment, we're already dealing with a lot of burnout, a lot of stress and strain on our on our healthcare organizations. And so putting folks in the room together, the trust happens over time. They work together, they meet together, they have conversations with one another, they can show what they know. One of the things we've talked about, we're on a bit of a diversity and inclusion journey with all of our councils, and we sent out a survey to everyone, and now we're facilitating conversations in each PFAC meeting, and, and these will go on for indefinitely. It's not just going to be a, a one and done. But one of the questions that came up was essentially around trust. It was about, you know, do people hear me and respect me? And I think one of the ways that that our councils have come up with handling that is at the beginning of every meeting, rather than everybody going around the room and introducing themselves and saying, because that can sometimes be laborious and take a, a long time. We're going to have one person at the beginning of every meeting, either a patient and family advisor or a staff member, spend about five minutes just introducing themselves and telling their story both professionally or as a patient and personally, a little bit about themselves. And I think that will also help build trust. It's these interactions where we get to know each other, meeting after meeting after meeting, where I think that trust grows. Well, you may not build the trust yourself, but you certainly build the house in which it uh, happens. That's a great, great story. So as you start working with clinicians and as you've been working with clinicians, what advice do you have? for them on interacting with and working with the different PFACs? It sounds like you've already got a really strong relationship with your clinical teams, but what advice do you have as people are putting these together when talking with their clinicians? Yeah, also a good question. I appreciate that that observation, but it probably waxes and wanes. I mean, you know, people come and go from the councils, they serve for a while and they may drop off, and then we will have new providers or other clinicians and new patient and family advisors. And I think it's a great to have a blend of people who are more experienced, maybe less experienced. Some people perseverate and spend a lot of time on, you know, bylaws and term limits. That's never been much of a concern to me. I have some members who've been around for a decade and their perspectives are just as important today as they were back then because they have so much institutional knowledge of MUSC. But for clinicians, I guess my advice would be to be open, to allow yourselves to be vulnerable, which is not always easy, and to invite your patients and families to a seat at your table. When you're comfortable, don't be afraid to invite them to your table. Invite them to join your quality initiatives. Invite them to join your teams because they will enhance your efforts and and help make you better. I had a physician say to me once, you know, Caroline, the outcome of the patient is my responsibility. I can't hand a family member a list of medications and say, here, you pick which one you want. The outcome is my responsibility and mine alone. And my response was just, well, of course, deference to to expertise is why people choose us for their care. But if you're going to change the medication, partnership means that we have a conversation together. Why are you changing the medication? Did the old medication stop working? What options are there for a new medication? Because when I get to the clinic with my son, I'm the continuity of care, not the electronic medical record, which we would like for it to be, but allow me to be the expert and and the continuity, whether it's my own care or the care of someone that I love. I had a radiologist say to me, tell me recently that 
he said, sometimes, you know, we'll be working on a project. He, he came from an organization where he had a PFAC specific to radiology. And he said, you know, sometimes as physicians, we'd sit around a table and we come up with all these great ideas and we take it to the PFAC and they're like, that's a waste of time. Like, we don't care about that. He said, so they save us time and money. And so when I speak in front of groups now, I always say my last slide is if, if, if there's anything that you can do, what I would ask you to do from a patient and family center care standpoint is, number one, humanize your data, share your data with your teams in a way that's not just a blip on a chart, but when you're showing rates of harm, you know, we've got a quality professional who uses icons like little boy or little girl icons, or tell a story before you present your data. Tell a story about a patient. So humanize your data, join your local PFAC that represents the area that you serve, and invite patients and families to join your teams. That sounds like great advice. Well, to wrap us up, if you could go back in time and, you know, tell yourself some of this advice, what do you wish you had known when you started doing this work? Patience. <laughs> to be patient, you know, that, that I had heard that over and over and over again from people who were doing this way before I started doing it and that were doing it very well. To accept that things move slowly and that's okay. We may take a few steps forward and a few steps back, and I see that all the time. Culture change, again, does not happen overnight. Relationships. I say this a lot. This work is all about relationships, creating relationships, getting to know the people that you work with. In my former job, they used to refer to me as a patient advocate. I really hated that terminology. I didn't want people to see me as a patient advocate. I'm not a patient. I'm an advocate for the care team members, for the staff, for the surgeon, for the intensivist. Patient advocate sort of feels like we're creating an us versus them kind of mentality. So I would say, you know, I think maybe I knew it on some level, but for people who are doing this work, I can't emphasize enough that relationship building is the most important thing. Find the champions in your hospital that are passionate about patient and family center care or who are doing it and they don't even know they're doing it. You know, they pick up an iPad to FaceTime a family member who can't be there during rounds. That's a, a beautiful example of, of partnering and improving care and improving discharge and preventing people from coming back in unnecessarily by partnering with them. It's not the warm and fuzzy side of healthcare. This is about creating meaningful and intentional partnerships to be better. And that's what's good for all of us. And I think another good thing to know is that the American Hospital Association and other organizations you're serving as a conduit for all of us to learn from each other. And the, the, the thing that I, I think I learned pretty early on is that I, you can't do this work alone. So I'm an N of one in my department, but I get to learn. I have the privilege of learning from people all over the country who are doing what I'm doing. And I think that's really important. Absolutely. And I think there are a great number of folks who are doing this work who have an amazing am amount of resources. And I think um, much like everyone I've spoken to, incredibly passionate about this work. And it's just a delight to talk to you and hear about all the great work you're doing. So Carolyn, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for all the work you're doing. Thank you. Thanks for having me.